and begin reading with me in verse 1. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense and onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, the ark with its poles and the mercy seat and the veil of the screen, the table with its poles and all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light and the altar of incense with its poles and the anointing oil and all the fragrant incense and the screen for the door at the door of the tabernacle, the altar of the burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments for his sons, for their service as priests. This is indeed the word of our Lord. We begin the section that we have from 35 to the end of the book by Moses oddly mentioning the Sabbath again. And it's not because this Sabbath is greater than any other commands that God has given to them, but it's because of the work that they are about to do. God, I think, has something of a vision of the zeal by which the people are going to appreciate and pursue this work. And he wants them to know that even now, as you pursue to build my temple and my tabernacle, you must do it in the right way. So you can't build it just by working every day of the week. Even in the building of the tabernacle, you are to take that last day off. And this is why he mentions fire here, I believe. It is not because they're never allowed to make fire during the Sabbath. It is specifically because they're not allowed to work on the tabernacle during the building of the Sabbath. There's something of a promise that is given here as well. There is to be peace and comfort and security a lasting and full rest for the people. This tabernacle is a symbol of the fact that God was going to bring them rest, that God was going to be with them, that the Garden of Eden would be fulfilled here amongst the people. So they couldn't possibly build it while ignoring the very symbol that they were building. Rest was important. They look into the future and they're reminded of what God has already said. So we will do the same. The first thing I want to bring to your attention today is to recall that God has delivered you from death. As we think back over the book of Exodus, please recall that God has delivered you from death. As we sort of review over the book of Exodus, it's a good time to remind ourselves that there is a way in which we shouldn't read this book. 
It's really easy to read Exodus like it's simply a story of a people from long ago, what God has done for them and to them and by them, how he worked and how he helped a people. It's very easy to read the historical books, and especially the book of Exodus, I think, is a story about people and not a story for people. But it is indeed for us. This is our story just as much as it was Moses. It is for us. It is indeed about us, and it needs to be read as such. After all, as we talked, as we went through the book, we, we referenced the fact that this is how the saints of old treated this story repeatedly. If you go and read Psalm 18, David has his life spared, and the language that he finds to use to praise God for sparing his life, for helping him from the very pit of death, is the language of Exodus. John does this for the entire life of Jesus. The entire gospel of John is set up almost as a, as a book of Exodus. Instead of ten plagues, Jesus does seven miracles. They're, they're called the same thing. They're signs or wonders instead of our typical plague and miracle there. The signs and wonders are kind of the same, same thing. The same thing that God does in Egypt to show his fame and his glory is the same thing that Jesus works in Galilee and Nazareth to show his greatness and his glory. But you could come to those things and say, well, this is just a way of talking. It's a way of illustrating what's going on. You know, if, if you found out that the federal government was listening in on your dinner plans with your wife and you said, ah, big brother is listening to us, you, you would say that without implying that 1984 has become a real and true reality, right? You, you would simply use it as a way of speaking, as a, a way of demonstrating things. Now, I don't think that you should hear what David does and what John does and what we're talking about in the same light. We're not saying that this is like what happens to us. We're saying that what happens to us is what happened to the Israelites. Listen to how Moses himself talks about it. Moses, what we believe is the author of Exodus, also in Deuteronomy, tells us kind of the same thing. So in Exodus, we have Moses descending from the mountain and giving the laws of the commandments, the ten words, to the people of God. And he gives them in Exodus 20. Oddly enough, at the very beginning of Deuteronomy, 40 years later, looking into the promised land, Moses is going to give the exact same ten words to them again. But he prefaces giving the ten words to them 40 years later by saying this in Deuteronomy 5. Hear, O Israel, the statutes and rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Horeb, Mount Sinai, same thing. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The, the actual elders who were present at Horeb, other than Joshua and Caleb and Moses, have died. They're gone. The people who now are present there are either older and would have been, as the saying goes, knee-high to a grasshopper, and many of them would have not been born. And yet Moses says that story is your story. God didn't just make it with them. God didn't make it with our fathers. He made it with you. The same goes for us. It is our story. We are not in this story but it is about us. It is for us. And it is nothing less than a deliverance from death. 
The people who were in Egypt faced a certain death. They were continually threatened with death. They had a lack of true life, which could only be explained by the sort of zombie existence they had, just waiting for death to finally come. And Egypt on both sides is pictured as death. You enter into it because of death. It is famine that drives the people of Israel down into Egypt. It is famine that sends them there. It is death itself being sent down to the pit that sends Joseph there ahead of them. And it is only through death that they come out. They are sent through and out of Egypt, not by the land route, but they are to go under the waters to the very place in their thinking where the dead reside. God comes to this place of the dead. He descends to them and delivers them. He brings them out of death. This culminates in the rhetorical question of chapter 15's song, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? There's obviously no one. No one is like our God who delivers his people from death by going down to the land of the dead for them. This is the very pinnacle of what Jesus himself has done. He has come and heard the cries of his people. He has known that we have ourselves been in in slavery, not just to other men, but we are in slavery to our own sin. We are captivated by it. We are sought by it. Death itself, we were in slavery to, and he has delivered us from that. The problem with all of this, if we're honest, is that death is not a passing concern for the vast majority of us. We have challenges, trials, and concerns in our lives. We have problems with relationships, our career, with wealth. But death is way down the list of things that many of us are concerned about. A couple of weeks ago, after making what seemed to be at the time an incredibly routine tackle in a regular season football game, Devin Hamlin fell to the ground. He got up from that tackle, walked for a second or two, and then fell to the ground. That itself wasn't completely odd, Sometimes things happen to players, they don't recognize that they're injured that badly at first, and they'll walk for a minute, and then they'll, they'll kind of just go down to the ground. And, and, you know, the trainers came out, everything was pretty normal. But as soon as the trainers got there, everyone kind of realized that this wasn't a normal situation. It turns on that he, oddly, had a heart attack on the field, and they were doing CPR. They ended up calling the game. Now, I remember reading online someone asking the question, did, did I just watch someone die? It's a funny question to ask because just about the only thing that TV does well is show people dying. Every show on TV has people dying in it. People die all the time. The most popular shows that go on and on for ages and ages are criminal, law, and order. Every single actor, my wife and I have a joke, whenever we see an actor, we're like, what was he in? Well, they were in law and order, but what else were they in, right? So they're in law and order. We've got NCIS. We've got all those shows that are about people dying all the time. This was different because this was not fake death. This was real, true death. But it's, it's not just amazing for that particular side of the question. It's also amazing because this is not a question that people of old would have asked. Seeing people die would have not have been something that was odd. They would have seen people die in beds. They would have been around death. They would have known of people dying. They would have heard them dying in, in the room next to them. They would have seen what they looked like when they died. They would have heard the death rattle, as they say, in their breathing. 
for ages and ages and ages. Death was not kept behind screens and doors. It was not something that happened at hospitals. It was something that happened in homes. It was something that happened around us. It was something that was perfectly present in our lives. Today, it's something that we are kept from, something that is separate from our existence and from our lives. Part of that is good. I'm not going to lament not watching more people die. But at the same time, death is this wonderful recalibration on things. When stuff like this happens, players who are on the field talk about how it kind of put things in perspective. I mean, death has a real, real interesting way of doing that. The book of Ecclesiastes is pointing us at this kind of continuously. Death is the great leveler. And when you, you view life in terms of life and death, all of a sudden these sort of other things, as important as they are, listen, relationships, your career, wealth, all of these things are very important. It's not that they're not important. It's simply that when you understand that death looms out there, all those things sort of pale in comparison to them. These little things that we get caught up on, careers, relationships, our own independence, if Jesus has given you freedom and deliverance from all those things so that you get to keep your independence and you get all the wealth that you want in the world, you are secure in your relationships, but death is still waiting there for you, you will eventually lose all of them. But Christ has not simply delivered us from losing nice things. He's delivered us from losing anything. He's delivered us not just from the problems of this world and the temptations and the trials of this world, but he has delivered us from death. Recall that God has delivered you, friends. As you read through the book of Exodus and you read what has happened to the people of Israel, recall that God has delivered you not just from the difficulties of life, but from the loss of it. God has delivered you from death. Secondly, as we come to these chapters, Recognize that God has changed your life. Recognize that God has changed your life. The last chapters of Exodus, these six chapters, spend the majority of their time dealing with the building of the tabernacle. In going through Exodus, we have done our level best to read every blessed word of the text that we could afford to. There's only two sections that we skimmed over, 25 to 31 and now 35 to 40. Both of those happen to be incredibly detailed passages about building the tabernacle. And what you find if you read them both back to back is there is a great attention to detail from both the text and from the people. So God in 25 to 31 gives Moses this incredibly detailed instructions about how to do every single thing. Things that I'm sure people of Israel would have known how to put walls up and to secure them down. But God says, no, you can't do this on your own. I'm going to tell you exactly how to do it. Interestingly enough, though, in 35 through 40, we have almost the exact same instructions given, only we're told they did it. So, for example, let me read from chapter 25, and then we'll zoom forward and read from chapter 37. In chapter 25, Moses is instructed, they shall make an ark of acacia wood, 
Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on one side, two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. Up in chapter 37, we read these words. See if this sounds familiar. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold from its four feet, two rings on the one side and two rings on the other side. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark. If you were an English teacher, this is what this sounds like. It sounds like his Hebrew teacher came to him and said, I need 40,000 words on what the Exodus is like. And Moses came to the end and in chapter 35, he realized he only had like 35,000 words. And so he's like, I know what I can do. Cut and paste and put Bezalel in there, and we'll be okay. We'll make, we'll make the word count, right? Because it's exactly the same stuff. And it's not, it's not isolated to the building of the ark. Everything is repeated detail by detail by detail. These instructions take up over a quarter of the book of Exodus, Something that, frankly, if you were going to ask people what happens in the book of Exodus, they wouldn't even remember happened. Likely thinking that it belongs in Numbers or Leviticus, probably Leviticus. If you were asked to overview the book, most people would mention four things. The calling of Moses because of the burning bush, the ten plagues, signs and wonders, the ten commandments, and the golden calf. If you were to trace what happens to the people of God through that time, it's amazing how bad they come off. At first, they're oppressed, and we, we have some sort of sympathy for them because they're crying out to the Lord, and, and they're just being incredibly put upon by the people of Egypt. God hears them, and he comes to them. When, when God brings the, the judgments upon Egypt, they're, they're largely passive. They kind of fade into the background. That, the picture there is mostly between God and Pharaoh or God and the gods of Egypt and Moses and Pharaoh and those sorts of things. We come to the Ten Commandments and they, they seem like they're on top of things, but we realize very quickly with the golden calf how quickly they fall from that. And even, even in terms of their grumbling and complaining, they, they hit this pinnacle in Exodus 15 where they're praising God for his deliverance and then almost immediately turn around and grumble and complain. It goes from our sympathy to, to grumbling and complaining to outright wickedness and idolatry. It's not mysterious, I don't think, given the results that we've seen from Moses' intervention. God has shown himself gracious and merciful. And even though the people sin against him, he continues to show himself gracious and merciful. In fact, this is one of the great lessons from the Exodus. It's not that the people of Israel were so sinful, but that we ourselves are sinful, that faith is hard, that as we go through the wilderness, we're going to find that the trials and the temptations that we're put in are going to make us grumble. We're pulled into idolatry. It's part of our nature. It's part of what, what we need to see God has to cleanse us from. So we remind ourselves of this. We talk about 
Luke 18. And the Pharisee in Luke 18 that stands apart from this tax collector, a known sinner, and gives this sort of perfunctory thanks to God. God, I thank you. And then he turns directly around to say how much better he is than this guy who's on his face praying to God. I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector that I've kept my hands clean, that I've been honest and good before you. He goes on to, to parade all the things that he has and hasn't done. And the tax collector just prays, God, have mercy on me. So we do this week by week. We go through and we repent. We have it set aside in our bulletin. We're going to repent. We talk about how we fail God, about the things that we've done. And we do this in part, and we put a great detail on it, in part because it's something that our culture just doesn't do well. Our culture doesn't want to think that there is a God who will judge us for our sins, and so certainly we don't need to, we don't need to repent before Him. And what's more, sins are just sort of, you know, they're things that happen. It's almost passive. It's part of your DNA. It's just to err is human. It's something that, that kind of occurs to people. So to counter that, we insist strongly that the Scriptures are right. Our sin isn't passive, but it's an active denial of God and His commands. We are sinners. We are due death. We are owed absolutely nothing but wrath from God. We are right to remember that. We're right to do that in part because the greatness of God's forgiveness is always meant to be seen in light of what He has forgiven. And we can't ever kind of lose sight of that. His greatness is made greater by our miser misery and miserableness. His kindness is made greater by our evil. His grace is made greater by our reticence. A Christ who forgives only a little is only kind of great. If you had a neighbor, and he backed up into your fence when he was leaving in the morning because he was in a rush. You went out and you saw he broke a couple of boards. You said, okay, well, I could hold him accountable for this, but... I'm supposed to be merciful. I'm supposed to be kind. So, listen, you go about your day. Get to work. Don't worry about the fence. I'll, I'll get it fixed. Just put it out of your mind. Have a good day. He, he would know that you were merciful to him. It'd be different, though, if he ran over your cat. Well, that's a bad example. You'd probably just give him $10 and tell him thanks. If he ran over your dog, right? So if he runs over your dog, you would say, you'd say I forgive you. You ran over his, if you ran over your child, right? Your forgiveness, the greatness of your forgiveness, is in direct line with what you were forgiving. We do well to remember the greatness of Christ in forgiving us, to remember that we're not forgiven for little things. We're forgiven for great things. If Christ has come to achieve our forgiveness, to give us deliverance from death. He must free us from the very thing that put us there, which is our sin. So we repent. But we do well to remember that the greatness of Christ is not found simply in the fact that he forgives our sin, but that his mercy and his grace have results in our lives. He does what the Old Testament sacrifices can't do. He fits us for the glory of God. He hasn't just forgiven our sins, but he makes us holy. As the Reformers used to say, we are simultaneously sinners and saints. 
We focus a lot on the sinful part because the world just doesn't focus on that. But we are wrong to not focus on the fact that God has done great work among us. The people here are shown to be incredibly fickle sinners, the worst of idolaters, just dumb, stupid idolatry. God is literally burning the top of the mountain right in front of them. And they're like, yeah, let's, let's think of that thing as a calf, right? That's just idiotic. But all of our sin is irrational and idiotic. And here, what we find is that the people have actually been moved by the mercy and grace of Christ to live out every blessed word that he has said. But one of the reasons why Moses goes over this detail again and again and again is to point out that not one jot, not one tittle of what the Lord has required of them in building of the tabernacle have they forgotten. They did every ounce of it. Moved, no doubt, by the mercy that they've seen. 23,000 people dying in one day. They were spared. God has been merciful and kind to you. And they turn around and they act upon that. Yes, we are sinners, but we need to be able to finish our sentences. We're also saints. We reference things like 1 Corinthians 6, 9. We remind ourselves that we are unfit for the kingdom of God. That as unrighteous people, we have no right to claim the kingdom of God as our own. That we are thieves. We're greedy. We're revilers. We're swindlers. We are, many of us, sexually immoral. But sometimes we forget to finish that section of verses in verse 11 where Paul says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. It's good to be introspective and to hunt down all of the sin in your life so that you can kill it. But it's also right to give God glory and honor and praise at what he has done for you and in your life. There are very few passages of the Old Testament at all that speak as highly as these passages speak of the people of God. And you might think that it's kind of a dull praise, but as we've talked about in Sunday school, if you ever come to Sunday school as we read through 1 Samuel, it's very rare for Scripture, especially Hebrew Scripture, to tell us what is true instead of to show us what is true. And what these passages show us is that these people were incredibly devoted to doing what God had called them to do. It is effusive praise for the people of God. God's mercy and his kindness has had an effect. Look back over the years that you've been a Christian. See the work that God has done in you, not just to give him praise and glory and honor and to tell him thanks, which you ought to do, but also to equip you and to encourage you to walk forward in the future. If he's done that in 10 years, what can he do in the next 10? How much harder might you strive to be holy and righteous in his sight, knowing what he has already accomplished among you? Recognize that God has changed your life. Lastly, resolve that God is worthy of your effort. Resolve that God is worthy of your effort. Our passage ends in something of a fairly ominous note. Despite all the good that has been laid out, in chapter 40, verse 35, we read this, that Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. We had read earlier in Exodus that he used to go out to a different tent of meeting that was outside the camp. And he would go into the tent 
and the cloud would come down upon the tent. But there always seemed to be this, this material that separated the cloud from where Moses was. And so Moses could talk to the Lord in that tent. But now because glory of the Lord, the fullness of the Lord is actually indwelling the tent itself, this, this tabernacle that was just made. Moses can't go in. If Moses can't go in, then Aaron certainly can't go in. How can the priest, how can the prophets go in before the Lord if they can't see the glory of God, if their unrighteousness, their own filthiness, their uncleanliness will keep them from it? This actually is what the entirety of the book of Leviticus is. If you talk to scholars, a number of them would say that that one verse basically explains the existence of the entirety of the book of Leviticus. I think that's probably true. But that answer, even centered as it was on the tabernacle, can't be the full answer. Tabernacle was always a short-term answer, a shadow, a picture of something better That something better is, of course, Jesus Christ, because he does what the tabernacle can't do. The sacrifice of bulls and goats can never truly cleanse people from their desire for sin, but Jesus Christ can. He doesn't need cleansing, so he isn't offering his own blood. He's not offering his own sacrifice in in a picture of the true temple, but he is able to enter into the true temple to give his sacrifice. And by his death, He is able to give a full and complete deliverance of the people of God from death. Have you ever watched those prison shows and they they like sneak in files so that they can file down through a cake or something like that, right? They they bake it into the cake and they send it in and for somehow that, it never actually works. They always search the cake. I don't know. Picture that, right? And realize that what Jesus does is something like that. It's probably the worst analogy I've ever come up with, so just bask in the horribleness of this for a second. But Jesus, as a human being, is capable of dying, something that God was never capable of doing. But because he's also God, he is capable of doing something that no human being could ever do, because no human being can slip through the grasp of death. No human being was ever powerful over death. But this one was because he sneaks into the prison of death as it were divinity. And he is able to break the bonds of death. So, even as Moses seems to have led the people out, so Jesus does that better. Even as Moses seems to be preparing to offer sacrifices and offering, Jesus does it better. Even as Moses stands here and talks about the tabernacle as though it were a new creation. Back in chapter 39, Moses sees all of the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. That, that echoes really strongly from creation. The blessing of the people of the God after looking at the work that has been done. But that was all human work. Jesus remakes creation because he is God. He made it in the first place. But again, he does more than this. He not only does better than Moses and Aaron at everything that he has done, He builds a better temple because he builds us for the temple. He makes us fit for the glory of God. The very thing that Moses and Aaron couldn't do, we are built to do. We are the temple here on earth, as Peter has said. We are stones, living stones, so that God might dwell in us. Make no doubt about it. In their time, these people worked hard. They were indeed glorified and gifted by the Spirit for the work. If you look back at chapter 35 and begin reading in verse 30, we read this. 
Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. He has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach, both him and Aholiab, the son of Amasamach, of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. The Lord is very clear. I have gifted these men, not just gifted them, but then allowed them the gift of teaching. And notice how gifted they were. Every single thing that they needed to do, the Lord's Spirit equipped them to do. All the same, we are not given a time frame for how long it took them. It's unlikely that this equipping allowed them to work so fast and so readily they got this done in a week. This was a long project. I have no doubt that hearing all of these instructions, which honestly puts Ikea to shame, all of those instructions, both of those guys looked at that and they're like, this, this is a lot of work. And indeed it is. And God does the same for us. Not outside of us, not on acacia wood, not melting down gold and silver and bronze so that we might recast it but working in us. And the Spirit of God doesn't do that independent. He, he doesn't just work in you as though His shining light comes down upon you like a spotlight and simply works in you. He does it through the work of every other person in this room. We gather to labor together to build the very temple of God. The same kind of labor that they put in, we have to put in to make the tabernacle to be the very way that God has instructed it to be. But better than they did, because this tabernacle was always built, not just to be mobile so you would take it down, but one day to be obsolete. We are to be the temple of God that will stand forever. We've been gifted by the Spirit to help and to aid one another so that we might be fit together and made together into a perfect temple for God. Hard work isn't terribly hard when you know what you're working for and you think that it's a worthy task. People will put in incredible amounts of work if they think that it's worth it. Whether it's positive, a reward for them, more money, fame, gold, whatever it might be. Or even the avoidance of that which is negative. You're not going to be killed. You're not going to suffer. Make no doubt, the work that we are called to is incredibly difficult. We're called to form and fashion people into the very image of Christ, fit for a temple. It is indeed the work of the Spirit in us, but it's the Spirit's work through us that does this. And it is hard. People will resist. They're rough. They're difficult. They're prideful. And they're arrogant. All of you are. And I know you are because I am. When Moses puts this forward to the people of Israel, they knew that there was hard work ahead of them. There is hard work ahead of us as well. So, is it worth our effort? Is helping one another 
be fit for the kingdom of God, be fit for the very presence of God worth our time? Is it more worthy than the experiences and the novelties of this world? Do we suffer long? Do we show patience? Do we give guidance? Are we examples of mercy that we might help others be formed in the image of Christ? And more than that, are we, are we willing to be worked on by others? To hear, hear difficult words, not of, not of general failings, like we so often talk about sin. We talk about sin in the abstract. They say, you're sinful. You can hear that. General words are easy to hear. But to hear from someone close to you very specific, sharp words of your sin, of your failings. To have our edges smoothed out and our ridges rounded off. The question that needs to be set before us is pretty simple. It's not. Is God's glory which is meant to dwell among us and in us, worthy of that work and that effort? The Bible just continually answers that question. We continually answer that question. Yes, it it is worth it. The real question is, do you believe that God's glory is worth that work? Do you believe that it's worth the pain of being shaped and the pain of shaping others? Is it worth, is the glory of God worth being fit and molded and being put through the fire and reshaped by them? Is it worth that pain and that sacrifice? If yes, let us be reminded that through the work and the presence of the Spirit and the testimony of the Word of God, we have everything that we need to do this work. We are equipped to do everything that God has put before us. So let's be about our business. God has delivered us. He has forgiven us and he has remade us. Let us labor amongst one another for his glory. Let us pray. Our God, may you be praised for your work through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we consider his work for us, let us praise him. As we consider his worth, let us work for him. Give us both, uh, give us grace for both. This world has a way of wearing us down, of wearying us, making his glory fade from our view. Let it be front and center, God. And may our prayer before you always be to show us your glory. Help us to this end, that all might see and know that our God reigns. Do these things in the name of Jesus Christ, both for our good and for your glory. Amen. If you would stand and sing with us our song of response. All I have is Christ.